exoplanets, binary systems, and the search for life in this episode of the Space Podcast. This episode of the Space Podcast. Welcome. Today I have a great honor to introduce my new colleague, our own astronomy mastermind, Katrina Kaitasi. Thank you. I don't know about mastermind now, Jakob. On my way, maybe when I finished my education, I'll be some sort of mastermind. But it's very fun to be here at least, and I think it'll be very educational. I hope you don't become an evil mastermind. At least. <laughs> There's no chance. <laughs> We have a very exciting news this episode, an exomoon. Scientists believe that they may have detected one for the first time. Yes, it is a very recent discovery by scientists at NASA. Maybe some of you have seen the news both on Wetenskapensvärd and Asunomisundum. But here we will talk about it a little. To remind us of what it is, people have looked at the Kepler data uh, from the Kepler telescope and they have found the indication of an exomoon the size of Neptune orbiting a Jupiter-sized planet, that is a planet outside our solar system. An exomoon is a natural satellite of an exoplanet. This is a very interesting news. This will also be mentioned later in this episode. But why is this interesting? Well, since moons are very common in our solar system, we know that Jupiter has over 20 moons, so does Saturn and so on. Finding a moon outside our solar system would be an indication that our system is not unique in that way. We might also learn many new things. But the challenge right now is to actually confirm this exomoon and also to find its properties, such as mass. Now we just know that it's about the size of Neptune, but also we would like to compare it with the moons in our solar system and see how this moon affects its planet and learn new physics from it, maybe. That's a very big moon, the size yes. of Neptune. Yes, mm. it's very hard to comprehend the size of it yeah. compared to this moon we have. And scientists generally believe that there is moons in other solar systems, uh, yes, as we can see in our own, there's hundreds of moons, maybe thousands. Yeah, um, we would think that it should be so, since we, there are so many around our planet. Yeah. But we will see, yeah. if so is the case. The reason why they have not found any exomoons earlier is because moons are small. And uh, as we will talk even more about later, it's much easier to detect big objects. That's why we have detected a lot more big planets and less middle-sized planets, like less of Earth-sized planets, and even smaller planets are very hard to detect. Exactly. Now, we have another pressing news for you today. It's something that has happened very currently, and Jakob knows a bit more about it. This is the mission where they were going to send two new astronauts to the space station. What's happened there, Jakob? Yeah, we have some exciting news or terrible news depending on how you look at it the Soyuz launch vehicle i.e. the rocket that was carrying a crew of two astronauts to the International Space Station had a failure mid-flight during booster separation the crew capsule where the astronauts were sitting separated from the rest of the rocket and eventually landed in Kazakhstan where they were reached by rescue personnel 
the crew, the Russian cosmonaut Alexei Nikolaevich Ovshinshin. Don't quote me on that name. <laughs> Don't quote me on that name. The next one is a bit easier. And, and the other crew was American astronaut Nick Hay. They are both now safe back on Earth. But it's not where they plan to be. But at least they are safe. And how far up did they reach before they had to abort the mission? So this uh, abort was uh, around two minutes into flight. And by that time they reached around 50 kilometers. So they were halfway to the Karman line, which is 100 kilometers. And which is the line where space starts and the Earth ends, more or less. At that time was the time of uh, separation of the boosters. So this rocket, the Soyuz rocket, has four boosters. So four extra, small extra rockets. They're not actually small. Four extra <laughs> rockets on the side that disconnects from the main rocket around two minutes. So here something went wrong. The boosters did connect, but we could see some debris falling away. And the astronauts, after the separation, reported that they were weightless. They felt weightless. And that's something they usually should not feel. They should not feel at that, that point. point. At that point, they should be strapped into their seat, being pushed back by the rocket that are propelling them forward in a very high velocity, high acceleration. So that means that the rocket was shut off. They separated from the rocket, their capsule that they were sitting in separated, and they eventually landed in the Kazakhstan desert. Did they abort the mission automatically? Rocket is built in such way, or did the astronauts, when they felt something was wrong, abort the mission? I don't know that yeah. exactly. I don't know if that is a fact out there, or that that will probably be known in the future. Great. I myself don't know very much about rockets, so I thought maybe there is something that's inbuilt in every mission. But we shall see. So, it's a news, but what is the big deal of this? Why are we talking about it? So, the Soyuz launch vehicle have generally been reliable in the past, although it has uh, had some failures in the past, actually. The Soyuz rocket has been grounded now until the fault is identified. And there is, as of now, no launch vehicle that can carry humans into orbit except the Chinese Long March rocket. I'm not sure if the Long March rocket is compatible with the International Space Station, but I doubt that option will be explored much. The US have been very reluctant to cooperate with China in the space sector in the past, since the Chinese National Space Agency has very close ties to its military. US and China are not cooperating in that field right now. No. This is actually the reason why China is not part of the International Space Station project at all. So that's why China now is building their own space station, which could be a topic for another podcast. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, too bad that in today's modern time we still can't cooperate, even if it's for the sake of the pure science that has nothing to do with anything else. Yeah. Maybe that changes in the future. I only hope to explore space in a peaceful manner for all people of Earth. Yes. Anything more to add? What are we going to do now with these two astronauts? Well, so these two astronauts are now on ground and the rocket is now grounded until they can find out the fault. So if we are uh, lucky, what we would like to happen is that they find the error quickly and they can send another rocket up with these two astronauts and it will just be a delay of a few weeks. 
Worst case scenario is that they cannot find a fault. Maybe they are not comfortable in uh, flying this rocket anymore. In that case, we have three uh, crew in the International Space Station that are orbiting Earth right now. This sounds troublesome. Yeah, and they will have to come down eventually. They have a exit vehicle, a vehicle that's attached to the space station right now that they can use to get home, but it can only stay there for around 200 more days, then they have to use it. So that would mean that the International Space Station would be uncrewed. And yeah. this is a big station, you know, it needs a lot of maintenance work. I can imagine. That yeah. seems very troublesome and a bit dramatic. Yeah. We hope that that might not be the case. Yeah. We will see what the future will tell us about this. We can just wish them luck and hopefully that nothing serious comes out of this. Yeah. I just want to add that these two astronauts, uh, one, the Russian one, was a very experienced astronaut, but the American one have never been to space before. So they did reach 50 <laughs> kilometers when the, I don't want to call it disaster, but the error happened. They had a ballistic trajectory, so they did reach Carmen Line, so he... He's officially been in space, <laughs> even though it was a failure. That's good. And not a very bad start, anyway. Wish him good luck. You can find more news on different web pages, both the Skapasvad, National Space Board of Sweden, and even international pages, such as NASA and ESA. You're welcome to do that. But for now, we will continue to today's interview. And that would be, as we mentioned before, in the field of exoplanets. We will be joined by Melvin Davis and we will talk about exoplanets and much more interesting and educational things. However, this interview was very long, very fun for us. We learned a lot of new things. We wanted to include all of it, so we have decided to divide the podcasting episode into two. So this will be part one. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast and we are pleased to introduce the Professor Melvin B. Davis from Lund University, Hello. who will be talking about exoplanets. Welcome. Thank you. All right. We thought that we could start a bit about the background that you have. Take over, please, and tell us a bit about your background, both education and a little what you've done. Oh, right. Gosh. Yes. So, so I'm a professor here in Lund. Uh, I'm originally from Britain, and I came to Sweden almost 15 years ago, in fact. Um, I suppose I've been interested in astronomy for really quite a long time in school as well. And a typical path for us getting into astronomy is people do maths or, or physics really at school, at high school, at the gymnasium, and then go and do that as an uh, undergraduate subject. So I did physics as an undergraduate, and then people go on and do what's called a PhD, a research degree. So I actually spent time then in the US. I was an, a PhD student and then a postdoc, a researcher, in fact, in California then, and then I bounced back. To Britain to do to Cambridge in the some time ago in the mid 90s, and there actually I met uh, in Istanbul my partner, uh, who's also an astronomer, and uh, then we both ended up with jobs here in Lund, so that's how I ended up here in Sweden. Wonderful. Did you take your bachelor's in England, then a master, and then PhD in US? That's right. Yeah. So I was an undergraduate in, in Oxford in Britain. And then I did my PhD at Harvard in Boston, in New England, on the east coast of the US, and then was a postdoc in Pasadena, Caltech, California. Oh, cool. A bit better weather. Than yeah, than it was kind of nice, yes, but <laughs> I, I like Lund. Lund is uh, reassuringly English weather, so it's very nice. Yeah. Very, Lund is a very nice place, and we're very happy here. Yeah, 
it's very beautiful now with all it's the, it's go- gorgeous uh, autumn uh, day today for us so yeah. it's actually very pleasant we could move on on your current research areas right now sure so I, I do what I would call dynamical astronomy, worrying about how things move. So things are moving, accelerated by gravity. Gravitational force is the thing that, that binds the stars together and keeps stars orbiting around each other in galaxies. And so I think about, on a number of scales, what happens because of those dynamical interactions. Today we're going to talk about some of the things we've been thinking about here in Lund, about exoplanets, planets around other stars. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But in broad sense, we worry about things that go on, for example, inside groups of stars, stellar clusters where stars orbit each other, stars can get very close, they can even collide and merge, make more massive stars that perhaps even directly collapse to make a black hole that can then grow and see the black holes in the middle of galaxies. But also in these same environments, these birth environments of stars are more crowded than where the sun is today and it's good for us that we're not in a crowded place, we're sort of in the suburbs of our galaxy, the Milky Way, which means that if I take the sun and shrink it down by 10 powers of 10, the sun is roughly then the size of an apple, the nearest other star on that scale is about two or 3,000 kilometres away. So in the solar neighbourhood, there's huge gaps between the stars, which is good for us, right? Because it means that the stars orbiting in the galaxy orbit in a sort of complex, messy way. They approach each other, but because we're so far apart, the chance of another star getting close to our own star and scattering us, the Earth, messing up our orbit, is very, very, very small. But in these dense birth environments where stars are more crowded closer together, perhaps a hundred or a thousand times more crowded than us today, the chance of two stars getting close enough to scatter planets, at least on the outer orbits, is actually interestingly large. So it's good not to be born in too crowded a place like the middle of the galaxy. And we're lucky. We are lucky, yes. (laughs) And it may not be random that we find ourselves in a quieter place in the galaxy at a later time in the galaxy's history where the sun has got more heavy elements, so-called metals. Astronomers talk about metals meaning anything that's not hydrogen or helium, but heavier elements are important to us because we're made of heavy elements. We're made a lot of carbon and oxygen, and the planet Earth is made of heavy elements, and so you need to have what we call metal-rich environment when the star forms, when the sun formed, so that you can have rocky planets like the Earth. And so at the very beginning of cosmic time, stars don't have many heavy elements yet because they're not being made inside stars. And it means that the planets forming around a metal-poor star might only be gaseous planets like Jupiter. And you can't stand on Jupiter. We need rocky planets, we think, to exist in the way we do. So could you just tell us, uh, maybe to give us a bit of a reference, uh, how the life cycle of a star or a solar system? Sure. So the first thing to realize about stars is that stars have a range of masses. So some are much heavier than the sun, and quite a lot of stars are actually less massive than the sun. So we have a nice unit, the solar mass, and one solar mass just means the mass of the sun. So stars much more massive than that, perhaps 10 or 20 times the mass of the sun. Because there's more mass, more weight, they squeeze the gas in the middle. Nuclear fusion reactions are what powers stars, and massive stars fuse at a much higher rate because all that weight compressing is hotter and denser in the middle. So they burn up their fuel more quickly, if you like, fuse it more quickly, and then have explosive ends. So stars eight or ten times the mass of the sun, about one in 300 stars are that massive. They're quite rare, but they're extremely important to us because they then explode as what are called supernovae. And it's the nuclear fusion reactions in those stars that make heavy elements like the carbon and nitrogen and oxygen I mentioned earlier. And that's really important for us because that gas gets blown up in the explosion and pollutes the gas around. So we are the pollution of supernovae. 
So the fact that those stars live a short length of time matters because they quickly pollute the rest of the gas. Stars like the Sun fuse their fuel at much longer rates, slower rates, and so the lifetime of the Sun in total will be something like 10,000 million years. And we're about halfway through the, the age of the Sun right now, about a little over 4,500 million years. So the Sun is sort of halfway through what's called its main sequence, where it's fusing hydrogen to helium. And in the end, the Sun will expand and become a red giant, a big red thing, because the surface temperature is cooler than the Sun today. It's red hot rather than yellow hot. And then that's going to be bad news for anyone living on the Earth in about 5,000 million years, because as the Sun expands, it will get brighter, and it may even engulf the Earth, but it certainly will boil off the atmosphere. We won't be able to live, or our descendants, four and a half, five thousand million years from now, will not be able to live on the Earth because the sun will be too bright, too energetic. It will either directly engulf the Earth or blow off the atmosphere. So, but there's lots of stars like the sun still around. It's because they have these long lifetimes. And the very lowest mass stars, stars perhaps a tenth of the mass of the sun, which are extremely common. Most stars actually are less massive than the sun. 10% of all stars are like the sun. But the least massive stars will basically live forever because their nuclear fusion rates are so low. To be on a habitable planet around a low-mass star, we have to live a lot closer to that star. We have to be orbiting on a planet a lot closer to the star than the one astronomical unit, the Earth-sun distance we have in our own solar system. We'll be talking a lot about planets other than the solar system, called exoplanets. How do we find such planets? Right, so there's quite a number of different ways of finding planets around stars. The first thing to realise is it's actually rather hard to find planets around a star. Because if we think about it, imagine, just ask the question about an alien life form looking towards our own solar system. They see the sun, and you can see the sun from quite a long way away, but how easily could I find the Earth around the sun, or even Jupiter and Saturn? So Jupiter is much more massive than the Earth, and it will turn out that massive planets are easier to find. But a general problem is that the sun, the star, is so much brighter than the planets around, right? When we look in the night sky, we see, say, Jupiter or Venus, they look bright, but that's because they're very close. But if you think about it, they're a lot fainter than looking at the sun in the daytime. You shouldn't really stare at the sun, but you can imagine that the sun is a lot brighter than, than Venus or Jupiter. And that's the same problem for an alien life form. They can't very easily directly image, take a picture of the planets around the star because the starlight is so bright, it covers up the brightness, the light from the planets. So you can't directly image very easily unless the planets are a long way away from their stars. So how can we find them? Well, we can sort of infer the presence of planets around a star in a number of ways, and I'm going to mention three. So the first way is actually to measure what's called the radial velocity. So imagine I have a massive planet like Jupiter. So Jupiter is 300 times roughly the mass of the Earth, so it's the dominant massive planet in our solar system. So let's simplify our solar system for a moment and just have Jupiter and the Sun. So what actually happens is the Sun and Jupiter are actually orbiting around each other. So Jupiter is about one thousandth of the mass of the Sun. So actually the centre of mass, as it's called, the thing they both orbit around, is very close to the Sun. But nonetheless, as Jupiter goes around the Sun, the Sun also wobbles a little bit around this centre of mass. So think, of it, if you will, imagine the Sun is wobbling as Jupiter goes around it. Now we could, if we could image the position of a star really accurately, measure the motion of that star. And that's astrometric measurements, things that the Gaia satellite and European Space Agency satellite potentially will measure. But most directly also, up to date now, what people have done already is measure the motion of that star by using what's called the Doppler effect. So the Doppler effect is the change of pitch, right? We hear an ambulance or a fire engine approach and recede away from us. 
the pitch, the sound frequency changes because the waves get compressed and stretched. In the same way, the visible light from this star changes because the star is moving towards or away from us. And we can measure that. It's a very small effect, actually. It's only perhaps a few or tens of meters a second. So a speed that we're used to in terms of people sprinting, maybe, or driving a car. So not a very high speed. Lots of speeds in astronomy are very much higher than this. So it's a hard measurement to make. But we can measure this Doppler effect and therefore infer, seeing the star wobble by taking a spectrum of the star over time, the presence of these planets. That's method one. Uh, method three is the astrometric one I already mentioned, but method two is important for us as well. It's called the transit method, and it's actually a rather simple method in a way. Imagine you're looking at a star, and a planet passes in front of the star. Now, planets aren't very bright. They're much fainter than the stars. So a planet is almost like a, just a circle of blackness blocking out a little bit of the starlight. So imagine that something like Jupiter would block out perhaps 1% of the surface of the sun as we see it, if we see it edge on. What that would mean is as Jupiter goes around the sun, periodically when it's in front of the sun, the brightness of the sun would drop by that 1%. And then it would get brighter again when Jupiter moved away. And it would do this every time Jupiter goes around. So critically for us, the dropping brightness is periodic. So every time a planet goes around, the brightness of the star drops by the same amount. And so a reproducible measurement is easy to find in science, right? And so that's called the transit method. Transit just means the planet getting in front of the star. And this has been used to search for planets around the stars. The nice thing with the transit method is I can take a picture, just imagine like with a digital camera even, of a piece of night sky. Imagine many, many stars in that one picture, that one image. And I can look at the brightness of all of the stars in that image. And so it means if I pick a good piece of sky in a wide field of view with a you know, big wide CCD, I can actually measure the brightness continuously of many, many thousands of stars. So I'm sort of searching many thousands of stars in parallel for this transit effect. So some of your listeners may have heard of the Kepler mission, which is an American space mission, which actually did this. It had a satellite in space and it stared at one piece of sky for some time and looking at the brightness variation then of about 100,000 stars. And this then revealed transiting planets around those stars. And going forward, there's a mission just got launched recently called TESS, another American mission. We have a European mission called Cheops, which launched next year. And a few years from now, in the mid-20s, one called Plato or Plato, a uh, European mission again, using this transit method to look for planets. That is very good. And Kepler mission is known to have been very successful using the transit method to find many exoplanets. But using both virtual velocity and the transit method, what can we learn about these exoplanets other than actually finding them? That's right. So the transit method, because you see it blocking the starlight, for example, if it blocks it every month, it means I have a planet orbiting around a star that goes around once a month. And there's a key relationship between how long it takes me to orbit a star and the mass of the star I'm going around. So if we know that the star we're looking at is like the sun, so it has one, one solar mass, and my planet is going around once a year, then that planet exoplanet is also one astronomical unit away from its star, just like we are. Because uniquely you have to be that distance to go around once a year. So measuring how often, you, you, how long you take between transits tells you how far away your planet is from the star. And how deep the transit, meaning how much fainter the star gets, tells me about basically the size of the planet. So if I block out 1% of the starlight, then it tells me that the surface area of my planet, imagine like a black disk on the picture of the star, covers 1% of the surface. So it tells me the radius of my planet, or more precisely, it tells me the ratio of the radius of my planet to the radius of the star. But because we've spent a long time studying stars, 
we know from the brightness and the colours of stars what kind of stars stars are. So if I'm looking at a particular star at night, I can figure out if it's like the sun. And then we can model, we know the radius of those stars. So we can actually figure out pretty well the radius of a planet. But the transit method only gives me that. It doesn't give me directly the mass of the planet, or conversely, it doesn't tell me if it's a rocky planet, a dense rocky planet, because rocky planets are denser, or it tells me whether it's a ball of gas like Jupiter. Right, so the transit method alone just tells me the orbital period and the size of the planet. But if I can combine that with the radial velocity technique, the radial velocity technique, remember, was where we had Jupiter and the Sun orbiting around each other. So by measuring not only the period, so how long it takes to go round once, say one year again, but also then the amplitude, how quickly I'm moving, tells me about the mass ratio between my star and the planet that are both orbiting around each other. So actually the two methods together give me quite a lot of information because they give me both the size of the planet and the planetary mass. So if I can combine the two, then I can get the density of the planet. And even though I can't see the planet, if I know the density of something, then I can figure out what it is. If we play a game with, with you, the interviewers, and I say, I've got a box, and in my box there's something. It's either a lump of rock or a glass of water. And you say, okay, what's the volume of your thing? What's the size of the thing? What's the mass of the thing? then you can work out the density. Because water has a density of one, and rock is denser than water, right? One gram per cc. And a rock is much denser, so I can figure out whether my planet is a rocky thing or a ball of gas, like Jupiter. That is very good to know. What do we do if we can only use radio velocity, for example, if we can't see if the planet transits? We can still find out the mass, but can we find anything more? And how about when it's edge-on and when it's not edge-on? Right. So there's a few things in that. So the radial velocity, again, was measuring the motion towards or away from us of the star. And there's a little bit of maths comes in here. We can imagine, perhaps the listeners can imagine, if you're looking at a system edge-on, so imagine I'm looking through a system so that the plane of the orbits, the planet is orbiting around the star, is seen edge-on. Then I'm seeing all of the velocity motion. But imagine if the system is almost face-on, the motion towards or away from me is greatly reduced. So what I actually really measure is a lower limit on the velocity and therefore the mass. So there's some limitations in the observations. So it can be quite tricky to really get at things. And so it's that combination of radial velocity and transit. That's the point of the Cheops mission, is to measure very accurately the densities of perhaps 100 planets around stars in that way. But we can learn other things. So for example, with the radial velocity, we also learn whether the orbit of a planet is a circular orbit or whether it's an elliptical orbit, so eccentric orbit. So, so people perhaps have heard of comets so comets are things that come in in our own solar system from further out, and they approach towards the sun and go away again. So we call those very eccentric or elliptical orbits. They have a large eccentricity. A circle has an eccentricity of zero, but these comets might have eccentricities much closer to one, so they're big variation in distances. And with the radial velocities, because I'm measuring the motion of the star, I can not only figure out its to and fro amplitude and how long it takes to go round, but I can see the sort of shape of that velocity motion over time. And that tells me whether the sun is in a star is in a circular orbit or a very eccentric orbit, which in turn tells me about the planet's orbit. So let's imagine I measure one planet around a star with its radial velocity technique, and I discover it's roughly at, say, three or four astronomical units, the distance of the Earth's sun is one astronomical unit. And I discover that that planet, unlike our own Jupiter, that's about 5 AU, is on a rather circular orbit. Let's imagine we see a planet on a rather eccentric orbit, an eccentricity of, say, 0.5 or 0.6. That's really rather surprising because we think planets form out of a protoplanetary disk. Imagine we make a star, 
But because the star is made from gas contracting down from a much bigger thing, any spin in that gas means that as I contract, I'm spinning faster and faster, just like the figure skater pulling their arms in. And what I end up with is a disk of material orbiting around the star. Maybe that disk contains 5 or 10% of the total mass. Most of the mass is inside the star in the middle. But that disk of material, which could be very large, it could be 100 times the Earth's sun distance, is the stuff, the gas and the dust, that ultimately forms the planets. And so things forming out of a disk of material orbiting round in circular orbits, we would expect to produce planets on rather circular orbits. Roughly what we think has happened in the solar system. The eccentricity of Jupiter is less than, a, is about a few percent. But what we think's happened in these exoplanet systems often, we find Jupiters, Jupiter mass planets at least, with the RVs, the radial velocities, but a lot of them are on very eccentric orbits. And that's a bit of a mystery, right? How come these planets are on eccentric orbits? So the idea about that's the following. Imagine instead of having one planet, I have two or three. But unlike the solar system, let me put my planets a little bit closer together. That matters because the planet-planet interactions are larger if the planets are together. So planets are really orbiting around the sun. The star they go around is the dominant gravitational force because Jupiter is only one thousandth the mass of the sun. But planets also pull on each other and it's that little extra force because they go around literally thousands of millions of times. That extra force can matter. And in fact, if the planets are too close together, it can make the system unstable. It's good for us in the solar system. Perhaps we'll talk later about the, how unusual the solar system is. But the solar system is unusual in the sense that it's a stable system. Our gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, are sufficiently far apart that even though they tug and pull on each other, and their orbits actually change over time. People have studied that a long time ago. But they understood quite quickly that it's like a, a swinging pendulum. It goes backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Jupiter and Saturn exchange what's called spin, angular momentum, every 40,000 years or so. But they don't become unstable. But if the planets are closer together, the system becomes unstable. What does that mean? It means the planets become more and more eccentric, so their orbits cross. And if I have two planets whose orbits cross, it means there's a chance of the two planets getting very close together and scattering off each other. Some of the listeners may have heard or seen videos of the Voyager probes going around Jupiter, for example, and they get deflected when they get close to Jupiter. And that's what we mean by scattering. So the idea here, then, is that two of the planets, say if I've got three Jupiters, can get ejected by this scattering. And because the inner planet has literally done the work, it's given the energy and the angular momentum, the spin, to those two planets. The left-behind planet is close to its sun, it's more bound, but also has a random spin. A circular orbit's a unique combination of energy and its angular momentum, the spin. So if I give up lots of angular momentum, I'm left on an eccentric orbit. So whenever we see an eccentric Jupiter by the radial velocity method, what we astronomers think today is the following, we think that that planet's been made eccentric because the system has been unstable in the past, planets have been ejected, given up energy and angular momentum, the planets or planets left behind are on eccentric orbits. That is very interesting and it's good that we have an idea of how that works. But I was also thinking, since you mentioned that planets get ejected, what happens to them? Do they get ejected out of their star system or do they become the so-called free planets that people sometimes talk about? No, that's a good question. And you're, you're quite right, because the, the stars are orbiting in the galaxy, right? So in fact, the motion of stars in the galaxy is much faster. So the sun is going around in the galaxy at about 200 kilometers a second, whereas planets are going around the sun at maybe 30 kilometers a second or less if they're further out. 
So the planets get ejected from the planetary system, but will stay in the galaxy. So they are indeed what you call the, the free or free-floating planets. So for every eccentric Jupiter we see around another star, we think there's one or two other Jupiters that have been ejected. So they're quite rare. So massive planets like Jupiter are found perhaps around 5 or 10% of sun-like stars. And I mentioned before that sun-like stars are about 10% of all stars. So doing our maths, it means that there's roughly one or two Jupiters for every 100 stars or so in our galaxy. But there's a lot of stars in our galaxy. There's like 100 billion stars. So it means there's a lot of Jupiter-mass planets, or less massive, orbiting around on their own in the galaxy. And actually, if we knew where to look, some of the younger ones would still be bright enough because when Jupiter or Saturn formed, they're like sort of, they're not going to be stars because they're too low mass. There's no nuclear fusion in them. But they're a ball of gas that's slowly contracting, getting smaller over time. And as it gets smaller, it's giving off energy. It's shining by that gravitational energy. So I could actually, if I knew where to look, I could even image in infrared directly these free-floating planets. And people search for them. They search for them in star-forming regions. So free-floating planets will exist, and perhaps roughly one free-floating planet perhaps for every hundred stars in our galaxy. So they do exist somewhere out there. Is there a chance that they would be taken up by the gravity of another star as they move around? Could they come to our solar system? So that's a good question. So because they're quite rare, and roughly one in a hundred stars, what it would mean is that we would encounter one of these free-floating planets around us today after having encountered, on average, 100 stars, right? Mm. And I think you mentioned earlier that that doesn't happen very often because there's this two or 3,000 kilometers between the apple-sized stars around us. So we're quite safe. But it's certainly true in the star-forming regions that planets can hop between systems and potentially be picked up in this way. So we certainly see in some of our computer modeling looking in star-forming regions where stars are quite a bit closer together than where the sun is today, we can certainly have stars encounter each other. And if I have two stars encounter each other, both with planets orbiting around them, we absolutely see in our computer simulations, computer modeling, planets jumping from one star to the other. They can actually get picked up. And that can be very important for all sorts of reasons. For example, if I pick up a planet, so imagine I encounter a system and I've got some planets already around my star, but I pick up an extra planet. It could be at a funny inclination, it not being the plane of all the other planets. It, its orbit could cross other planets and it can destabilize the system. Stability is an important thing for us, right? Because life is about stability for us here. So what I mean by that is the following. If I'm in a system where my Jupiter has kicked out Saturn and become more eccentric, an eccentric Jupiter can mess up the Earth's orbit because if it periodically is tugging and pulling on the Earth in a different way, if I take the Earth's orbit, which again is rather circular, but make it pretty eccentric, if we spend half our time, half the distance to the sun, and our winters, we're twice as far away, this is too much for us, right? The variation in the energy we get from the sun would be too great because we want to live in what's called the habitable zone where we can have liquid water on the surface. But if we get too close and too far away periodically, that would mean too big a variation in the surface temperature over, over a year, and that wouldn't be good for us as life forms. So every time we see an eccentric Jupiter, a really eccentric Jupiter, even at the same distance from its star as Jupiter, that's evidence of death. And what I mean by that is that if there had been a habitable planet in those systems, we can really exclude them because we can model that because gravity is a relatively simple force. We can model it on a computer and the consequences of that instability phase where the Jupiter we observe on an eccentric orbit kicked out other planets, 
would mean that it stirred up the inner planets enough. We modelled that on a computer, in fact. And what we see is those, initially, if there were Earths on circular orbits, they get scattered too. They get put on eccentric orbits or ejected from the system or even dramatically scattered into their stars, in fact. So for every eccentric Jupiter we see, the really eccentric ones, we can say, aha, we know there cannot be a habitable world around those stars. And that's an important clue for us right now because the next generation of radial velocity probes, or instruments to be precise, on ground-based telescopes are going to be looking for tiny, tiny, really very small radial velocity wobbles with the intention of finding true Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars. So I mentioned before how Jupiter, you can measure the wobble of the Sun as Jupiter goes around it. Now the challenge to measure an Earth by the same technique is much higher, much harder challenge, because the Earth is about 300 times less massive than Jupiter. So the wobble it makes on the Sun is much less. So you have to be much more sensitive. And so a question today, really active question today, is which of the local stars around us, the sun-like stars around us within perhaps 100 or 200 light years, which of those stars do we pick, perhaps 50 of them, to study very carefully in order to see whether they have Earth-like planets orbiting around them in this habitable zone, distance of about one astronomical unit going around once a year. And so if we look at a nearby star that's like the sun, but contains, for example, an eccentric Jupiter, we know that's not a good place to look because any Earth originally in that system would have been ejected or scattered onto a very eccentric orbit. So if I'm looking or we're looking for Earth-like planets on circular orbits, it's an interesting question. What do we look for, right? Do we look for systems that don't contain any massive planets? Do we look for systems, ideally, that contain Jupiters but on circular orbits? But if I don't have that, do I pick a star without planets at all? Or do I pick one with an eccentric Jupiter? Well, the eccentric Jupiter probably rules out the circular Earth, so that's not so good. But it's an interesting ongoing question. It's a good example of lots of relatively simple questions in astronomy are still very much active. They're not all solved. There's lots of interesting questions for everyone to think about in the future. And this is one of them. Which stars are most likely to have Earth-like planets? And we have to decide that now as going forward. There's an instrument that's being built right now that's going to be operating in a few years called the Terra Hunting Experiment. You can find it by Googling it, uh, T-H-E. And this is a, a very much active question for them. They want to look at perhaps 50 stars out of a potential list of about 300 sun-like stars that are fairly close. And the question becomes, which ones do they look at? And it's an active question to think about. It's good to know to be able to rule out some systems that are not probable for having Earth-like planets. But when we also think about life, what do we want to find? What planets do we want to think of? Uh, or include in our research when we're talking about searching life. We mentioned Earth-like, but what is Earth-like and what is important? This is a very good question, isn't it? And and the honest answer from all of us is, is we don't know, right? We can have a, a prejudice, so to speak, that we think of, of life being very much like the life we're aware of. And when we talked about the habitable zone, people talk about then that meaning liquid water. So we start with that assumption that we need liquid water. Water is a, is a good substance for life, we think. Uh, and if we have the requirement of liquid water on the surface of a planet, so for a given kind of star, for like a star like the Sun, that means the distance from the, that star would have to be quite a restricted range. So roughly the Earth-Sun distance, we can't be much closer or much further away. But it could be that life has a different operation mode entirely. It could, for example, exist in oceans underneath a surface, a layer of ice in some quite massive moon around a planet much further away, for example. And so we have to be cautious about that. 
And it's a real challenge to think about how we can infer the presence of life around other planets. And that's a big question that is, is somewhat in the distance, I would say, to, to answer. But general ideas could be the following. We could imagine if we start off with this habitable zone idea, we look for planets in the habitable zone, stars, and people are doing that right now. And then we can hope to get good examples relatively close by, so easy to study. And if we have a, a what we think is a rocky planet, so let's imagine we found a planet in a habitable zone in a nearby star, we measured it with a radial velocity, and if we're lucky, maybe it's an edge-on system, we've also measured it transiting, which is fairly hard to do. But let's imagine we have all that, so we're fairly confident this is a, a rocky planet. Or I guess if we measured the RV, we've got, we've got some ideas about it. Then what we can then hope to do is potentially take a spectrum of its atmosphere. Now this becomes a challenge in the way I spoke about earlier, in the same way as directly imaging planets is hard because the star is very much brighter. A spectrum, all a spectrum means, right, is we take the light from an object, put it through a prism, or something that does the same, and split the light into its rainbow colours. And spectra are very useful for us because when we take a spectrum, we see not only the distribution of rainbow, but there's various parts that are darker, and those are called absorption lines because the photons are being absorbed. That's why it's darker. And that tells us about what things are made of. So when we see a spectrum of a star, the size of those dark absorption lines tells us about what is in the atmosphere, how much carbon or oxygen is in the atmosphere. And if I could take a spectrum of both the star and the planet and very carefully remove the much brighter contribution from the star and what's left then is a spectrum of the planetary atmosphere there's hopes to begin to understand what's in the atmosphere and then people talk about the sorts of chemicals you might find in an atmosphere that are evidence of life so how much oxygen carbon dioxide ozone are in an atmosphere might tell you something about that ecosystem but this is very hard right and we'll only ever be able to do it, we think, at least in the near future, mid-future, to the most nearby planetary systems, because they have to be closer, to be brighter, to be easier to study. But then you might potentially measure the atmospheres of planets. Um, so, for example, there's a European Space Agency mission uh, called Ariel, which is in the design phase right now. Again, your listeners can Google that, Ariel is its name, and you find out about that. And that's designed to take the spectrum of planetary atmospheres in this way to study the makeup of the atmospheres and so to understand if potentially these planets that we found in these habitable zones are you have evidence of, of life related molecules but as you say it's a big question what is life and it could be that people exist life forms survive around moons around planets further out or they might exist on a moon around a jupiter also at one astronomical unit, because we find Jupiter's closer in than our own Jupiter, which is roughly five times the Earth's sun distance. We find lots of Jupiters with radial velocity surveys roughly in that habitable zone. Jupiter itself, we think we couldn't live on Jupiter, right, because it's a ball of gas. People have talked in the past, Carl Sagan amongst others, about floaters, about creatures that would then float around in the atmosphere, and that may be maybe what happens in some of these situations, we don't know. But certainly you could imagine also a moon, or a more massive moon. So, you know, like the moon orbits the Earth, you could have a, a rocky planet orbiting around that Jupiter. And people are beginning to look for those, because potentially when you have the transit method, when the, the planet blocks out the starlight, if it's also got a moon orbiting around the planet, occasionally the moon will also block out a little bit of the starlight. And in fact, there's very much ongoing activity. There was a paper published last week, in fact, talking about the suggestion, at least, of an exomoon, a moon around an exoplanet, 
around another star. Uh, and this is very interesting, right? Because you could have quite massive a moon. So our moon is not very massive, but you could have moons more massive than the Earth, potentially, around very massive planets. And then there's, they're potentially also habitable. Having such a moon in the system, would that be possible? And would that give some kind of problem with the stability and such? Because those are so much bigger than we are used to. And that's right. So there's a, there's a lot of important questions that you raise. So the first question is, what is the most massive moon I can have? So when we look in the solar system, we don't find very big moons. We don't find an Earth or Venus-sized moon orbiting around Jupiter, right? Jupiter and Saturn have many, many moons, but they're not all that big. Some of them are as big as our moon, or a little bit bigger, but they're not as big as the Earth. So that's the first question, is what's the most massive moon we can have? And, and maybe we can do that. It could also be that planets, if you go through an unstable scattering phase, you might pick up a moon, right? So the leading theory to explain the formation of our own moon is that the Earth was hit by probably roughly a Mars-sized object, and a chunk of that was left behind and formed the moon. So the idea, there's various reasons for that model. And so the early solar system, even our solar system, even though we're not going through this instability phase, in the same way as some of these exoplanet systems, certainly was a violent place. So the, the protoplanetary system is made up of lots of Mars mass objects that then collide and merge and ultimately build things like Venus and the Earth uh, on a quite a long time scale, hundreds of millions of years. So you can have lots of things going on like that. So you might make it into one of these interactions. It could be also that you pick up a moon, right? Imagine I have Jupiter's and Neptune mass objects, for example. Many of them going through this scattering, I'm ejecting some. But let's imagine that somehow a Jupiter captures a Neptune mass object and informs that sort of binary internal orbiting around the star. But you're quite right, there's dangers to being on a moon because if I have if I'm a moon orbiting around a Jupiter at one astronomical unit, but I go through this instability scattering, it could be that another moon comes along passing within one Jupiter-moon separation and could eject me. So it could be quite a tricky thing, and that's an ongoing thing. I think a lot of us are now going to be studying by computer modelling, so we can model orbits. So because the interactions of planets, the individual interactions are rather simple, it's just gravity. The challenge is to do it on a computer because we have to take many little steps. So we work out the forces on all the planets, work out how the speeds or velocities change, and carry on modelling it forward in time on a computer simulation. But we can do that, and we can look at these systems and see whether we can actually capture a, a, a one planet around another, make a little uh, planet-moon system, and whether it is stable over time. But you're right, it could be very challenging. And it would also change quite radically the environment, because, you know, as you go around your host Jupiter, there may be that the effect of Jupiter could be significant. So Jupiter, for example, has very strong magnetic fields. When you look at the effects of moons on each other around Jupiter, for example, Io has enormous, I mean, enormous volcanic activity, right? Because it's tugged and pulled by other moons. And so, you know, it may not be a very habitable place to live in itself. So there's a lot of interesting questions going forward. Very exciting times, say, with this paper coming out just last week, talking about the first observational evidence, really, of these exomoons. In that case, the moon is actually about the size of Neptune. So a very large object, and perhaps that was captured in some of the ways... I just talked about. You have been listening to Sweden's Best Space podcast. In summary for today, we have been together with Professor Melvin Davis discussing the field of exoplanets. Amongst other things, we have been mentioning transit method and the radio velocity method as detection methods for exoplanets.
we've been talking about hot Jupiters and high eccentricity, what that means to a system and its stability. We have also talked a little about different aspects when we search for life outside of Earth. Stay tuned for the second part of this episode. The next part of the interview is very interesting. Can you give us a small teaser? Yes, the next talk will be again about exoplanets, but we will also mention planets around different places. Many exotic such as white dwarfs, black holes, binaries, and how this would affect life, and much more. Until next time, good day, and good skies. Bye-bye.